0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Meredith Angwin. And Meredith, it's an honor to have you on with us today.
1: I'm delighted to be invited and to be here. Thank you.
0: Now, you're an author and an energy analyst. And I always enjoy thinking about energy. One of the reasons is because all of us are intensely affected by the energy grid and the production of energy and the distribution of that energy via the grid, and we just take it for granted. But increasingly, we are seeing more and more people that really don't know what they're doing, and yet they're in control, they're in power, making legislation that is I think our grid is right on the edge, but you you are the expert. So can you talk to us about our grid and how close to the edge are we? And what about rolling blackouts and all of those worries?
1: Well, I think that rolling blackouts are a very strong possibility, if not a near certainty in many areas of the grid. The areas that are most vulnerable to them are the areas that are called the RTO areas, which other people call the deregulated areas. And the basic thing that goes on in the deregulated in the RTO areas, regional transmission organizations. Yes. These are areas where th- there are layers and layers of regulation on the grid. And uh, there's always some regulation at the state level. But in areas that are not RTO areas, the state level regulation is the strongest and they, the utilities are vertically integrated they are responsible for outages they own the power plants they own shares and transmission lines, not when one utility doesn't necessarily own a whole transmission line mm-hmm. uh, they, they own the distribution system and they're subject to the PUC now the Public Utility Commission for that state now People say, well, the PUCs are just in the pockets of the utility. Yeah, but they also are very aware that they're appointed by elected leaders and that if the power going out too much or the, uh, the prices are skyrocketing, they're going to be in trouble. And so sure. they tend to be very concerned with reliability and they they also are concerned with what you might call a resource mix that is they don't have all your eggs in one basket okay and so forth and also another term resource adequacy that is do we have enough power plants to meet peak demand and so we have all those things going on in the non rto areas in the rto areas those systems still exist so the states still have public utilities commissions, and so forth. But the big powerhouse is the regional transmission organization itself, which runs auctions for energy and sometimes for capacity. But let's not get into that right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But basically, every five minutes, the transmission organization has done a projection. And it looks at its projection of how much electricity will be needed. Let's say they need 700 megawatts for the next five minutes and uh, that's actually a pretty pretty small amount it could be supplied by one power plant but Mm -hmm. i'm just using it as an example so they say we need 700 megawatts and so one power plant comes up and says i can be there for you i have 300 megawatts i'm offering them at ten dollars per megawatt hour then another plant says comes up and says I can be there for you I have uh, 200 megawatts and I'm offering them at $20 per megawatt hour 20 cents per kilowatt hour and then the third plant comes up and says I have 400 megawatts and you can have them for $40 per megawatt hour and so the grid operator says okay we need everything from the first plant that's 200 we need everything from the second plant that's 200 and we only need part of the third plant because we only need 700 and they would get us up to 900 okay we're uh, i think we're uh, we're we're done now and everybody's getting 40 dollars per megawatt hour that is the highest price plant picked sets the payment for all the plants that are picked hmm. so you see uh the highest price plant is what sets what they call the clearing price
0: mm-hmm. now
1: that clearing price is only valid for five minutes Because in the next five minutes, they do it all again, obviously, with computers. Yeah, right. But but the the idea is that the demand might change. Let's say it's uh, six in the morning. Well, at six in the morning, there's not much demand. But five minutes later, a lot more people have woken up and they've turned on the lights. So the demand has gone up. So that maybe they're going to have to take more of that 400 megawatt plant's uh, output because they need more power. So they're following the demand which is often called the load mm-hmm. and they're they're running an auction to meet that demand and the thing about that auction is that the highest price sets the clearing price okay and so you end up with now that's the that's the simple version but you can already see how back in california in 2001 it was possible to game this because let's say you owned a whole bunch of plants and you say oh You know, I'm taking two of my plants offline for repairs. Oh. And that's going to force one of my high-priced plants and another high-priced plant onto the grid. Yep. Because they're going to have to make up for it, which means that my two plants that are on the grid are going to make much more money. And my other (laughs) two plants (laughs) won't require me to buy any fuel for them. It's a win-win for me. Oh, yes. So, you see, the thing is that there's no... um, All the power plants are considered to be merchant generators. That is, when they sell, they sell, and when they don't sell, they don't sell. They're not like public utilities in the vertically integrated system, that if they go offline, if people don't have power, they're going to be fined by their PUC. Mm -hmm. Their rate of return to their stockholders is going down, and so they don't want that to happen. But you see, instead of looking at people being good or being evil, just look at those incentives that are set up by the market.
0: Correct. Now, I got a question. I want to clarify. The whole uh, scenario you just described and the bidding for power and that sort of thing, that was for the regional transmission, the RTO?
1: Yes, that's for the RTO.
0: Okay. And
1: those are the ones that, in my opinion, are most vulnerable to rolling blackouts and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that the individual power plants are not personally responsible for being online now they've tried to fix this with capacity markets but if you read my book shorting the grid you'll see that the first part of the book is watching our local iso new england rto desperately trying to figure out a way to get the power plants to live up to their capacity obligations. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes just stepping away from that capacity obligation will raise the um, clearing price. And guess what? It's good. It's all good. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm trying to say. Uh, One of the things that I, I say about the RTO systems is that the power plants do the best when the grid is doing the worst. yes, there are, They have an incentive for a kind of rinksmanship that the vertically integrated utilities didn't have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I'm just going to go on to one other thing here and talk a, a little bit about why do we go to the RTOs? Well, people looked at the vertically integrated PUC way of doing things, and they said, whoa, look at this. If a utility regulated by PUC spends some money and the PUC approves it, well, then the utility gets a rate of return on that money, like it gets a profit on that money. And, of course, if it doesn't provide power reliably, it gets fined so its profits go down.
0: So isn't that the way a, a normal free market system should work, where you get a return on your investment?
1: Well, yeah, but the, the idea is that the the return on the investment is coming from the PUC's orders to uh-huh. say you are allowed a 4% rate of return. Or, I'm sorry, but, you know, you took a week to get some people back online. I'm sorry, your rate of return is going down. You're mm. being fined enough, so that is no longer 4% for you. Get used to it. Hm. Do better next time. Wow. <laughs> So the thing is that what happened is that a lot of people looked at this and said, the rate of return is calculated on what's called the rate base. That is the amount of money that the utility spent on capital equipment and some other things. We could There's entire books on that. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that the general idea is that if you were sitting around looking at this, you'd say – Oh, for a utility, the way to make more money is to spend more money, get a bigger mm-hmm. rate base. get a, uh, So the utilities are going to gold plate everything that they can push through the PUC approval process. And, you know, to some extent that's true, but the difference is that the reliability was paramount and now it isn't even in the mix properly. It yes. simply isn't in the mix. I mean, if you go to the ERCOT RTO when you say, well they warned about they warned about not having enough power plants ages ago or whatever and the answer was not our problem. I mean it's not our problem. We we don't we don't do that, you know. We don't have to worry about are there enough power plants? Are they going to be online? I mean, it's just an auction man.
0: Yes. Well for me as a consumer, what really matters to me is the reliability, and and then, of course, the cost. But reliability to me means when I turn that light switch on, it comes on. I suspect that there's some regulators out there and big government that may even redefine the word reliability.
1: Uh, Well, actually, it is redefined, but (laughs) I I don't... I, don't want to, I, I got into a little argument online, and uh, one of the things was I said there's really nobody responsible for reliability. That's and, my uh, concern. And somebody said, well, no, there's a NERC, National Energy Reliability Council, has mm-hmm. reliability uh, responsibilities. And I said, well, do they make sure that there are enough power plants and those power plants have fuel? And the answer is, no, no, no. They don't do resource <laughs> advocacy. <laughs> what
0: That's they like do the nuts and bolts.
1: About how you manage your substations and how you train people. I mean, they have a lot of things they do that help the sure. grid be more reliable. But when you get right down to it, their definition of reliability is not I can turn the lights
0: on. You know, increasingly as I get older, I'm interested in the nuts and bolts and the facts. And I I did a quick look up online, and these numbers may not be exact, but I wanted to know the percentage of power that comes from different sources. And you know, in our day and age, all the rage, of course, is solar power. But if you look at one of the charts I found, um, 60% of the power came from fossil fuels, And I think about 19, almost 20% came from nuclear, but only like 2, 2.5% came from solar. Are those figures in the ballpark?
1: Yeah, they are. They are pretty much in the ballpark. I mean, Hmm. people don't like to admit how heavily dependent we are on on fossil fuels. And one way they avoid admitting it is that somehow or other natural gas has this aura of being very clean. Actually, it is pretty clean. I mean, I'm not an anti-natural sure. gas. But the thing is that what what happens on grids is that you, you put in a mandate, You know, like the state will put in a mandate, we're going to get 50% of our electricity from renewables or something and like that's that. That's what
0: I'm worried about, to tell you the truth.
1: Yeah, and and the thing is that then – The renewables go on and off when they want to. Yeah. If you were to visit a grid operator's, a large grid operator's uh, control room where they do the balancing, that is, remember when I said when people get up in the morning and they turn on their lights? Yes. Well, somebody has to tell a power plant, get online, because the demand has gone up Mm -hmm. and and then at at 10 o'clock somebody has to tell a power plant get offline we don't need you for the rest of the night yes and if you go to one of those uh balancing authority rooms you see that it's a lot of work even with power plants that you can command so when you have power plants you can't command like you can't require the wind to blow you can't tell clouds (laughs) no it's a really awkward time for you to be floating over our solar collectors please don't do that no i mean what you have to have is for every megawatt installed of intermittent renewables that go on and off when they want to you have to have a little over a megawatt installed of what's called fast-response plants, plants that can come up to speed really fast, and those are gas.
0: That's really important. I hope people are hearing that for all the talk about solar. And I actually have solar here, so I'm kind of familiar with it. And it was for more of a survival point of view, so we actually have storage. But people don't think about the fact that during the night there's zero power from solar... Or just recently, we came through a lot of storms of rain during the day and heavy overcast. By the way, there was zero power coming in. We live in the Northeast, and sometimes during a bad snowstorm, the panels are all covered with snow, and there's no power there. So it really fluctuates. You know, when you've got a nice clear day and the sun is bright, yeah, you're getting some power but it also assumes that the grid is already up and operational and that you can synchronize with that grid. If if you happen to have a system that feeds back into it, it assumes that that nuclear-slash-fossil-fuel-powered grid is up and operational. So I think people forget about the nuts and bolts and the real facts on the ground. Now, I just mentioned a big one, and that's nuclear, and you're an expert in that. Can you talk to us in the last uh, 10 minutes or less remaining? about nuclear, please?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, well, I, I, as I was talking to you before when we were chatting, uh, I was one of the first women project managers at the Electric Power Research Institute. Now, Electric Power Research Institute, also known as EPRI, is basically funded by utilities to provide research that will help all utilities operate better because you know, there's all sizes of utilities and many of them can't fund significant research. They're small electric Mm. cooperatives or whatever. And so we funded research to make different types of plants operate better, better transmission and so forth. We were all scientists there. We weren't scientists and engineers. We weren't lawyers, you know, Mm -hmm. as you get, uh, higher up as I worked through my career, just knowing the science isn't good enough and you be- you begin to have to know a little more about yes. the Clean Air Act and how yes. things are regulated and so forth and so on. So anyway, as I, I started out in the renewable group and uh, I was all for renewables and I still am in many ways, but I sure. was completely shocked at how often uh, locals were fighting our renewables i thought "Oh, these people are terrible and now i began to realize that renewables take up a lot of land that could be used for something else many uh-huh. of them do and uh, not everybody wants to live next to a huge wind turbine uh, and there are no. a lot of reasons not to want to live next to a huge wind turbine and so if you want a low carbon power you really need more than renewables to get it. And yes. what, the other way to get it is nuclear. And nuclear is, in my opinion, just a a wonderful power source. It has a very small footprint. All kinds of people have done analysis of how many people have died due to the entire nuclear fuel cycle. Oh, yeah. To whatever, it's at the same level as uh, as wind turbines, mm-hmm. uh, and and lower than solar, and lower than fossil. And I mean, it's a very safe system. Now, it is. People say, "Oh, what about the three big accidents?" And I say, "Okay, Three Mile Island destroyed the plant and hurt nobody. Had very, very low release of anything to the surroundings." It's never been any credible study showing that it did any harm, and it hmm. hardly could. It was sort of like everybody getting a tooth X ray. Then um, Chernobyl definitely killed people. I sure. mean, it de- did. Now it was it was in the Soviet Union. It was being run rather badly, really badly, because the Soviet Union ran power reactors that were also military, and so it was just a disaster. And it did it did kill about fifty people and cost possibly another thousand, or cancers. Mm-hmm. But you understand, but if you, if you look at a, a forest fire, we look at how many people died in a forest fire by, like, who was trapped in their homes, what how the fire crews yes. were. We don't go and say, oh, you know, a lot of people were breathing a lot of smoke. We're going to follow them for the next uh, 20 years to yeah, see we if don't it's lung it. cancer. I mean, you know, so true. what I'm trying to say is there are very small effects. And of course, uh, Fukushima, the tsunami killed 20,000 people. The plant was just like a Three Mile Island, and they had a small release. To, to That's interesting. Anybody.
0: That is very interesting. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of nuclear power. Probably somebody will run me out of town for having said that, but if they do, it's, it's because they don't really understand the facts on the ground. I'm sad to see one of our nuclear reactors here in New York turning off, and um, I hope there will be other nuclear reactors, that new ones, that are built. I guess I'm naive in wishing that, but I, I think it's a wonderful way to get uh, electric power.
1: I do, too. I do, too. And I, I have visited Indian Point. I, I ah. consult there for a bit when I was... Uh,
0: yeah, that's the one.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely plant. It's devastated the area around it when it closed because yeah. it was a source of a, lo- a good paying jobs, good taxes. And, you know, th- what they did was they they took a fence at Indian Point and they hung hard hats on it for all the jobs that were lost. Uh. It was quite a A moving thing
0: to see i'll bet and i it's a shame now we've got two minutes left Uh, today we've been talking with meredith angwin Uh, tell us a little bit more how people can get your book if they're inclined to learn about this Uh, you've got a lot of scientific details in here shorting the grid the hidden fragility of our electric grid how could they get a copy
1: well, you can get a copy on Amazon. you can also get a Kindle copy, which is nine ninety nine so it 's a very affordable yeah. and uh, you can get you can order it through a local bookstore they won 't have it in stock but it 's distributed by Ingram Spark and you can get it through a local bookstore you can also get it on Apple Books I think it's called or maybe it's called iBooks now you can get it on Kobo it turns out that I had never heard of Kobo but it's very big outside of the United States as an ebook format and so there are all sorts of ways you can get it the probably the simplest if you want a hard copy is order it on Amazon mm-hmm. or go to your local bookstore and ask for it or go to Walmart and ask
0: for it yeah well this is wonderful um, in the last minute remaining if you were talking to one of our I want to say crazy politicians but I'll, I'll I'll not say that one of our politicians and you wanted to encourage them in reasonable thinking in one minute uh, what would you tell them regarding the, the electric grid?
1: I would tell them to prioritize reliability over all the theoretical things that a grid can be. A grid can be, you know, distributed. It can be small. It can be low carbon. I, I'm going to say what people really need is the, the lights to turn on. And when they don't turn on, people are very much endangered. And that should matter to a politician.
0: Yes, yes. Yes and And I just had a thought flash through my mind. I was thinking back not too long ago, there was an ice storm unexpected that affected part of Texas. and those big wind turbines they seized up, and that was uh, they were depending, i I guess, uh, too much on wind in that area. Is that right?
1: Well, they, they depend a lot on wind in that area, and there's turbines, some of them seized up. But the main thing is that when there's a real hot spell or a real cold spell, it's usually a stationary situation, mm. and basically the wind doesn't blow. If you think of a hot day, you're sitting there thinking, yes. I hope we get a breeze. And the same is true on a really, really extraordinarily cold day.
0: Yes, oh, that's a good point. Well, thank you very much. Uh, It's an honor. Today, we've been talking with Meredith Angwin, and uh, she is the author of a couple of books, and the one we're focusing on is Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, and it's available on Amazon. Meredith, God bless you, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, and God bless you, too. Thank you.
0: And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.